It's, it's about embracing like the heightened emotion and the dramas and the narrative from the angle and the, the like the, the nostalgia. It's about kind of embracing all of those things. What is going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden. I'm Troy, and you did remember. I I, I know. We were saying before we started this, I was like, I I, I literally (laughs) had like a moment of panic last night. I was like, do I even remember the intro anymore? And I, I did have a moment where I had to think about it. And when we're in the flow, you paused. Like, yeah. I did. I paused. <laughs> I was like, wait, what's next? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remembered, but I did have a moment. It wasn't as smooth. So um, that's all right. It'll get better in the coming weeks here as we're back in the flow. Just got to stretch out that podcast muscle. That's right, man. That's right. Um, so it's been a little bit of a break. We've both been kind of swamped with personal things and career things and job things and life things. So, but we are back now and we are able to uh, produce some good stuff and have some convos. Plus, I just miss it. Like, people don't realize this, but Troy and I are like best, we're besties. So, uh, it's, this is kind of us just catching up with each other and then we just kind of record it. So, um, I, I <laughs> that's these. how it started. We were just like, we just wanted to catch up on a regular basis and we're like, what if we recorded this? How <laughs> yeah. would that work? Yeah, exactly. But anybody listen? I know. And today is going to be fun because we really get to talk about something that both of us kind of enjoy. I mean, it'll be a little bit um, some I'm sure we'll do some like media studies, deep dives, and I'm sure there'll be some philosophical themes. But we also get to talk about basketball. So that's never a bad thing. Yeah, it it feels a little bit wrong, like I'm gorging on ice cream or something like I'm binging (laughs) by talking about basketball for a whole episode. I already, you know. Yeah, go ahead. I already bring it in too much, so and I'm aware of that, but I can't help myself. Yeah, yeah. And like we always want to say, too, if you're not a sports fan, remember, we've got our shitty minute and our sticky leaves. But also, it's not like we're just going to be talking about the ins and outs of sports and like statistics and things like that. We're going to be talking about a series called Winning Time that um, uh, give people. It's a Adam McKay project starring John C. Riley and a whole bunch of others. Give, give people the lowdown on it. Yeah, so the the series is based upon a book that a sports journalist named Jeff Perlman um, wrote maybe ten years ago or so, and and Perlman was a, a pretty um, you know famous uh, around that LA scene, and so he had written a lot on on the Lakers and the NBA as well as uh, other sports as well, and he wrote this book called Showtime, which is about the '80s Lakers, Jerry Buss, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, they win five championships in the decade. Perlman. Uh, and does extensive reporting and publishes this giant five, whatever, hundred page book on it. Real in-depth stuff um, has a flair to it too. It's funny, uh, mm. even though it's serious journalism as well. And Adam McKay, I guess, read it and um, decided he wanted to option it and make a series out of it, which is interesting because it's very much a sports journalism book. Like it's not, it's not a linear drama, even though it can be read that way. And Perlman does a good job, I think, of, of making it kind of a narrative, have a narrative arc to it. Um, but yeah, the, the show adaptation is, is pretty different than the book in a lot of ways. Um, but mm. I'm really curious to hear what you th- thought about it, given that you're looking at it, not only through like a, you know, a guy who grew up in Southern California. And so you have a lot of 
institutional memory, I guess, of, of that um, in the same way that I do. But you also have like a, like a media eye that mm. I'm going to lack and especially lack in this context because this is this was made for me. Like there's nothing in the world I know more than this story. <laughs> so I can't be objective about it. So I need to hear from somebody who can be objective about it so I can actually have informed opinions. It's like it's like 80s Laker is 1A for you and then 1B is like Kant. Is that how it goes in your like knowledge abilities? No, I, I don't think it's been close, dude, because like, <laughs> no, I'm like, there are Kant scholars who like they, I don't even speak German. I can't even read German, right? <laughs> I I I would gather that I'm one of the world's leading experts on the Lakers of people who aren't <laughs> intimately involved with the organization, like yeah. just on the history and stuff. I I think I I know more than almost anybody. And I'm, I'm not saying this to like puff myself up. It's ludicrous. Right? Yeah. It's a childhood obsession. Like my one of my first words was magic. That is amazing. Like that. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing that was just from birth. Like, that was, you know, inculcated in me. I don't have a choice about it. Right? It's so it's a, sad. It's an addiction from birth. I was just talking with my partner about this. I was like, man, I wish I had, like, video footage of her childhood, you know? And, like, you know, like a fight that she might have had with her family or, like, any sort of, like, funny things. Like, I wish I had video footage of the past that I could, like, see. Because, you know, I'm never going to get to see that. Nowadays, you do, right? Everyone yeah. has those video records. So... <laughs> In another universe, there is video records of you in your first words saying magic, like little baby Troy saying magic. And I want to see that. And I'm just very angry that I'm not going to get to see that. But maybe that's just the price we pay for being old souls, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to say, right? Because there's something about the nostalgia that would go away if you had the, the actual record of it. You would, maybe you wouldn't even care about it because it's too available, right? The very fact that it's not available is what draws you in. That's true. And in, and what I have in my mind is basically like a mixture of adult Troy with whom I'm familiar and then baby Yoda saying magic. And it's like <laughs> that's literally what popped into my head. So I don't know if that's the right combination or not, but that's what I saw. And I mean, I just, it might not be far off because from, from people who've known me my whole life, they say I basically haven't changed. So... <laughs> amazing you can just slap this head onto a onto a baby and there you go perfect um what, what do people say about about you as a baby what were you like i'm, I'm gonna guess you were like a rambunctious energetic troublemaker i wasn't really a troublemaker though i was always pretty i was always pretty good i was like a kind of goofy like playful but i was very sort of like i wanted to, to hang with the adults and i wasn't really a troublemaker like Playful and rambunctious to an extent, but not really a rule breaker. Okay. I was yeah. thinking more mischievous, like getting into shit, but I, I can see the goofy, the goofy, playful. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely more on the goofy, playful. Here's the thing. I was way more goofy and playful, and then I got into high school, and it just wasn't cool, so I had to learn nonchalance, and I practiced nonchalance for a very <laughs> long time. And so... Practice coolness, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, like... Act like you don't need the shit and you get the shit for free, you know, like that kind of <laughs> thing was like a mantra that my friends and I used to wield quite frequently, which is that old swingers quote um, from the movie Swingers, for those of you that know mm -hmm. it. Um, but uh, yeah, so I had to learn, learn nonchalance, which is too bad because I think my, my sort of like instinct is goofy and playful. So, but a little bit of rambunctious mischievousness, but like I was always very respectful of rules and order and things like that which is funny because like politically and socially i'm like a, a principled anarchist so you know there's 
there's something there. But then again, I'm also drawn to like the play <laughs> and experimental side. So that kind of makes it, there's a way to synthesize this, I'm sure. Yeah, there's something there about like community building. Like you're always the person in a room who's building the bridges between people, yes. which is why you're able to be a principled anarchist, right? Because oh, yeah. the part that's so hard to, to do, like that's the thing you're good at. Yeah, because I just presume that that's everybody else's assumption, right? But it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but so for me, I can be a principled anarchist because it's like the communitarian aspect is like already assumed. I'm like, well, obviously that's the goal and the assumption. So let's just play and experiment and be non-hierarchical in in the present because obviously we all assume that we have the same sort of community or like uh, like communistic or communitarian goals. So, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and I wouldn't even doubt that we actually do all have to share that same goal. It's more that like it comes easy to you and it does not come easy to most people, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's it's hard work. Yeah, wow. This is like having a mirror reflected back at me because this is this is very enlightening. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, cool. So yeah, so we're going to talk about winning time. Um, it's got some interesting themes in it as well, too, uh, with kind of just understanding. If it's 1980s Los Angeles culture, it's 1980s America. There's some race relations between the whiteies with the, the Larry Bird side and then, you know, the the black team, which was the Showtime Lakers. Um, also, the reason that the show is called Winning Time is because this is kind of a funny story. The book was called Showtime because they were called the Showtime Lakers. But because mm -hmm. it was produced by HBO, the their competitor is the channel Showtime, so they wouldn't call it Showtime, so they called <laughs> it Winning Time, which I actually am still annoyed about because Winning Time is just like a horrible I know, like, name. It's a horrible name. And also, your HBO, like Flex, Flex on Showtime by calling your show on your network Showtime. Yeah. And who watches like, Showtime anymore oh, anyway? Yeah, are they worried about people going to Showtime and being yeah. like, oh, I can't find the Lakers show here. I guess I'm not going to watch it. Like, that's yeah. not going to happen. Come or on, or I'm going to watch Showtime, the series, and be like, you know what I want to do now? I'm just going to go on Showtime, the channel, for no <laughs> explicable reason, but just because. And never go back to HBO. <laughs> never, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. This is why suits in the industry are capital I idiots. Yes, exactly. They, they needed to flex, and they missed the opportunity. Oh, Jesus. All right. So, yeah. So um, that's what we'll do. Any housekeeping stuff that we got to do before we get into the goodies? Yes, yeah, so we do want to mention, as we usually do, that if you want to support us in some tangible ways, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. We have a couple different tiers of support there. You can do things like help us pick our next patron sponsored episode and get access to our discord and stuff like that. Um, so, again, that's patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And in reference to that, we do want to mention that a little while ago, we, as Austin said, we've been on a break for a little bit here. Um, one of our patrons and listeners, uh, Raphael Margriter, sent us an email saying that he wanted to donate, uh, make a one-time donation to our Patreon for or in the name of his brother, Simon, who's a fan of the podcast. Um, and so we were graciously going to accept that. And I don't think we told him this, but we decided kind of on our own that we we're going to shout out Simon on the podcast. Um, that's not something Raphael asked for. He just wanted to make a one-time donation in his brother's name, which was really sweet and we thought it was yeah. really cool. So we thought, hey, let's go shout out Simon. Um, what's up, Simon? What's up, Simon? Hey, like, at us. And was it Simon's let's birthday? Let's hear about your story. 
Yeah, which was, it, almost, which was like two months ago at this point. But yeah, so happy belated, yeah. belated, 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 way birthday. belated birthday. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's great. I when I when I saw the email too, I was like super flattered. I was like, holy shit! I was like, uh, usually people donate to like you know things that are important to them, and I was like, oh shit! So I guess we're important to Simon and Raphael. So yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, guys. We appreciate it. All right, well, let's uh, let's make sure that we keep Simon happy and let's get into the shitty minute, shall we? Yeah. This is the segment of our episode where we one of us gets to rant and rave about something that has been ticking us off. I mean, it's been a little bit of a while, so I'm sure there's been a few things that have irked you, Troy. But uh, what are you going to rant about this week to prime the pumps a bit before we start talking about winning time? Yeah, I have a whole list. Of things I've kept up with over the last, you know, month or two. What happens? But what the, happens the most, when you don't? What happens on your list when you like look at it and you're like, oh, I like, I'm just not as pissed by that anymore. Like, is that catharsis or is that like, like, look what happens to the shitty minutes that don't get resolved or expunged? Oh, it's hilarious, dude. Like, I go on the, I go on my little uh, Google Keep Notes, yeah, app where I have like my potential uh, shitty minutes and sticky leaves and, um main topics we can discuss and stuff like that. And there'll be an old one. Like I'm looking at it right now and I have one from the NBA all-star game, which had to have been February, <laughs> right? That's when the all-star game is <laughs> talking about, you know how they do the Elam ending now where you, in the fourth quarter, you play to a specific target score, like in, like in a schoolyard rather than for 12 minutes. Oh, I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. So they do that now. And I, and I love it. It's amazing. I wish actually that basketball was just played this way. Period. Right. To a target score. Because the, yeah, the drama to, of to 11 or 21 getting to or that. Something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, like, that's what's great. It's like one point, you know, you know, um, uh, oh, shit. What do you call it when you're on the playground? Um, what, when, you're one, when you're one, you, you ask if you win by two, but uh, a point, point game point. Yeah. 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 Point when you're uh, one shot away, if you're playing by ones and twos, like you're one point away. That's um, right. Point. I love it. I love shit. The, the drama. Point. That's awesome. That's right. <laughs> And it is. And um, speaking of but, flexing, like there is a flex in that, too, because you're just like staring right at them. And you're like, by the way, we're about to win, you know? Yeah. Like you're about to get like I'm, I'm setting you up underneath the like, you know, the hangman's noose. Right. <laughs> That's right. Um, so anyway, the, the, the shitty minute there was supposed to be like uh, the, they call it the Elam ending because I don't know, this is a guy named Elam who like came up with it in some other league or whatever. Okay. It's like. They're acting like it's a tech bro innovation. Yeah. Right. You said this has been done on the schoolyard forever. Yeah. This is just playground ball. Like give it some like, like old school, you know, awesome, like Rooker Park style or something like that. Right. This is how you play basketball like out in the playground. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be fun. I agree. But anyway, I'm not mad about that anymore because it's not February. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. All right. Go. So the most immediate shitty minute that I have that I wanted to ask you about. Guys, I just watched this last weekend, um, Michael Bay's new movie, Ambulance. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't heard. I haven't even heard of it. No, yeah, go ahead. So normally I would never watch a Michael Bay film, but I had heard from several different sources that this is a thrill ride. And Mm. so it's a dumb movie. It's a dumb Michael Bay movie, but it's super adrenaline fueled and fun to watch and ridiculous in like a kind of self-aware way. Something like that. So I was like, you know, I just finished the summer semester and I needed to like just veg out. I didn't want to watch something, you know, intense and difficult. I just wanted a popcorn flick, right? So I slap on this movie ambulance. 
it's everything people said. Like it's the, it's like basically an hour and 45 minute long car chase or something like that. Um, and it's thrilling and adrenaline fueled and, you know, mostly kept my attention. Um, the thing though, about this movie, and I don't know if maybe I'm going crazy or if the world is crazy. See, this is what I need you for. I need you to mm. tell me what percentage of what's happening. The world is crazy. Phenomenon that Done. I'm... No, the world is crazy. That's it. I answered it. There you go. Yeah, I, yeah. I assume this is the case. <laughs> All right. So here's the deal with the ambulance. Um, the basic setup is simple. Jake Gyllenhaal is like a career criminal bank robber guy. And his brother is um, uh, Yahya Abdul-Mateen. I can't remember oh, yeah. exactly how you say it. Yeah, he's the great. Guy, the guy who was Dr. Manhattan in, in Watchmen. Um, and I guess he's adopted. That's how they explain how they're brothers, something like that. And he, his brother's, uh, uh Mateen is a, uh, a veteran and he's, um, his wife has got cancer or something. They need money for her experimental surgery. And so they're going to rob a bank and blah, oh, very blah, blah. dog it's day afternoon. Real, real simple. Yeah. Real simple, traditional kind of bank robbery action movie set up. And what gets me up this movie though, is with all of the crazy stunts and awesome action sequences and all the stuff that was everyone raved about it, the the sort of catch was always like, this is a dumb Michael Bay movie, so don't expect there to be like a coherent plot and, and stuff like that. So I, I know this going in. I've seen many action movies, right, mm -hmm. that are just like this, in this ilk. All of Arnold's great 80s action movies are like this, right? A few of these movies sort of come out on top and actually have good dialogue and a coherent plot and stuff like Die Hard is the ultimate example of that. Right. What I'm seeing in a movie like, like this one, like ambulance, and I've seen it in a lot of movies recently and I, and I'm having trouble trying to figure out what's going on is it feels like the dialogue isn't just bad. Like the, the dialogue in an Arnold eighties movie is bad, right? But it's, it's bad in a way that's intelligible, right? Like, there, there's something about the badness of the dialogue and the plot that's just, you know what, this is ridiculous or it's silly or something like that, right? Or it's a, it's a bunch of tropes, right? But a movie like Ambulance, and I, I'm trying to think of other movies that are like this recently, and I'll, I'm sure I'll think of some later, but it's that it's, it's like it's bad in a way that I can't even make sense of, of what is going on. It's like people are speaking a foreign language or like the dialogue had been put through Google Translate 17 different times. And that's mm. how it came out. Like people in the, in the characters in the movie talk to each other in a way where it doesn't seem like the other person heard what the first person said. <laughs> like they're just like they're just expressing mm -hmm. things without without there actually being dialogue because dialogue has like the same root as like dialectic, right? There's a back and forthness to it, right? There's yes. a sense in which dialogue only really happens when you have understood what the other person has said and then respond to it in kind with some like shared assumptions underneath making the dialogue intelligible to one another. Mm. That's just like a, that's just an intrinsic part of how dialogue works. And it feels like movies increasingly and Marvel movies are doing this a bit too, um, where it doesn't feel like the person knows how to speak the language at all mm. who's writing these things. And it's, and it's freaking me out a bit because there's something about like, am I going crazy that I, I can't even make sense of why a person would say those words in right. that order in response to what the first person just said? Like, I don't even, I can't even catch what's going on. Like, do you see how that's different than like the bad yes dialogue in an 80s action movie are you kind of following what i'm what i'm what i'm saying here i think so yeah 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 um yeah so 
so, so a few things. I'm just curious, like, what in the yeah. world is going on here with this phenomenon? Well, so first of all, I just have to say this because my f- good friend Kier Seward, if you remember, if anyone used to listen to our podcast that we did called I Dig This Movie, or if you know Kier from his work, he's a director in London. He is a huge Michael Bay defender, and he introduced me to a video essay from what was the best in my opinion, the best film YouTube channel. It's called Every Frame a Painting. Have you ever seen Oh, yeah, I love that one. Yeah, so I think it's Tony Zhao was the guy's name that used to run it. I think that's that's his name. Um, He has obviously stopped the channel, and I think he had a partner too, but I don't remember who it was that he did it with. But um, they stopped the channel and um, have gone on to like other you know, screenwriting gigs and things like that. But there's a video on that channel on every frame of painting that's called Bayhem. And it's about Michael Bay's. Oh, shit. And it's amazing. It's only like nine minutes or something like that. And it goes into the intricacies of like the technical difficulties and kind of, for lack of a better term, visual poetry of Michael Bay's style, which he terms Bayhem. Instead of mayhem. <laughs> and it is it is true because it is mayhem, but it is bayhem. And so I would just I just for people out there, if they're not familiar with every frame of painting bayhem, go watch that little short Hell video yeah, essay. Watch that. And yeah. And if you're on every frame of painting, like just watch all of that because it is amazing. And if you're interested in film and how to get shots and if you're interested in cinema at all. Um, from the visual perspective, you got to check out that channel. So that's the first thing I'll say. Oh, dude, Second- there's, a, there's, a, there's a video right underneath the Bayhem one about somebody doing a Bayhem analysis on ambulance. <laughs> okay, so now so what watch we that have too. to do <laughs> is we have to watch the Bayhem analysis of ambulance and we have to see <laughs> if it somehow redeems this film for you. But back to the issue of dialogue. <laughs> Dude, I, I've been having the same or a similar type of experience. And the way that I'm I'm thinking about it is it's not just in film that I'm seeing it, but I'm seeing it in television. I'm seeing it in like uh, video essay communication, like vlogs. I'm seeing it in – we were just talking earlier about like what happened to SportsCenter. SportsCenter is no longer, you know, like highlights and stuff like that with interesting personalities. Now it's just all about like takes, right, and like the dramas. I think Mm -hmm. what you said where you said it's just about characters expressing and emoting. I think that we're in a time period where the dialogue is totally not appreciated because and maybe it's because of like a, a turn towards like a radical individualism and like this assertion of self, right? This like affirmation and assertion of what you are and not that there's nothing valuable about self-exploration. There is. But I think the the more like rich aspects of self-exploration are kind of like what Foucault talks about um, in Technologies of the Self is that like knowledge of self also implies care of self, which implies a sort of like working on self, but not in the way of like optimizing so that you can become um, a sort of more potent and self-assertive self, because that all kind of like presumes your starting point from the outset that's tied into maybe a social system of individualism, which is like tied to isolation, which is tied to like this kind of like celebration of like um, kind of just emotive expression to the neglect of Community building to the neglect of societal structure, to the neglect of um, like 
the dialectic which is self and other in connection with the otherness, like something that is not always already controlled and not always already known at the outset. And you engage in this this interaction that then elevates you and transcends you to a, 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 another level of understanding or another level of awareness or another level of problems that need to be addressed or that can be addressed. Whereas now everything is always already known. So, and this is all tied into like when people, and I'm going to get there in a roundabout way, I think too, but like when people are like, I'm doing my own research as opposed to understanding what like, like academic research really at least aspires to be like doing your own research is usually just, I'm looking for answers to affirm my own biases. Right. But the starting point is the e the ego's self-assertion, right. Which means then that all or, or just the like scrolling their Facebook feed. Like it, it may not even be as much as yeah. it may not be even be as involved as looking for answers. It's just I've scrolled my Facebook feed and this is the thing that I came to that. So I'm, that constitutes research because I, I did it. Yeah. And then I think I think usually when they come to a conclusion, that's like I did my research and now I know the answer. Usually it's the answer that they know is something that is comfortable for them, which means that they didn't really challenge themselves in doing the research. Right. Um, like looking on subreddit at Q and shit like that or what 4chan or 8chan or wherever the fuck Q is. What is it? Q and on whatever that guy like that's not like actually mm -hmm. challenging yourself and and doing the work of like dying to self or self disruption or working on self. Right. Like that's that's just kind of like looking through consumer choices of information that have been quantified for your ability to take them in and then make yourself feel better as an entity in a market. Right. And I think there's something going on here that's related to this, because then that means that like dialogue as as just emotive expression it isn't really about trying to connect with other um which is when you get really interesting characters that are coming together at a, at a point of tension that are trying to resolve a conflict you know and the last thing i'll say totally on the opposite side of michael bay i just recently saw park chan wook's new film decision to leave at the melbourne international film festival and you want to talk about dialogue that is not like that like you want to talk about like <laughs> how to craft a story that is not like that fucking watch his films, you know, like this film decision to leave or watch the handmaiden, watch old boy, you know, watch thirst. Um, those films, they are crafted with an understanding of otherness that I think maybe the kind of like Michael Bay being so caught up with self-assertion misses because there is no concern for the other with a capital O or the otherness of the other, which is the wild, the unknown, the absolute, like the thing that can lead you to ruin, right? There's none of that in the majority of the media content that's being produced nowadays. And I think that's really like one of the driving issues here. Yeah, I think you're right about this kind of important philosophical point being underneath this this phenomenon. And it, it does go back to this notion of of openness to the other, I think. And, you know, one way I'd put it is like part of what's important about dialogue, um, both in, in real life and also as it's represented in, in films and novels and stuff, is being open to someone else's point of view. There's something cognitively mature about being able to um, like understand that someone else has a different point of view on the world and being able to, to incorporate that point of view into your own point of view, right? Like to understand how that works and to be open to that point of view, not just being like subsumed into yours, but being a challenge to yours. There's a kind of Hegelian master-slave thing going on here, right? And that's 
that's a super important point. Like it grounds um, epistemology and ethics simultaneously, right? It's, it's that fundamental of a point. And I do think there's something about a culture where that, that sort of really important part of the social fabric, what connects us to other people, as being cut off and has been kind of burned away at its root, becomes represented in, in media like this. Like it's, if enough people are seeing a movie like this and they're not having this experience, it's, it's probably because most of the time, like interactions with people don't have anything really authentic about them. And not authentic in the sense of like honest or truthful, but authentic in the sense of like openness to other person's points of view. There is a sense in which in the movie, the characters just emote a thing and then the other character emotes a response, not incorporating and like thinking and being challenged by the other person's, you know, emoting, just a, just a reactive. It's purely reactive emoting, right? Yeah, and it's just or, a, it's or just it's reflex. Conf- it's conflictual because you just don't like, like the characters are just like, I like X and you like Y and that's the conflict. But that's not fucking conflict. That's, that's like childhood conflict, you know? Or like if character X says, uh, I need this or you've done this. And then the other person is like, well, you're, and they just like, it's like, well, hold on a second. Like, Fucking actually figure out the points of cross resonance, figure out the kind of like ways in which you can internalize and work through what's being said and done. And it's films like, I don't know, Amours by Amore by Michael Haneke just popped into my head as like, like those, like, I like what you said about cognitive maturity and emotional maturity. And this is something that I have been lamenting, especially over the last year or so, is I'm just looking for resources that are both cognitively and emotionally mature. And I am finding like there's just a real dearth of them, you know, like the songs that we listen to, mm. the lyrics that we're hearing, the form of communication that we get on. Like I was just talking about like sports shows. It's all about like a take and a flame war and an assertion. And I just I know that that's what's hot and what's sexy right now. But I am so less interested in that. And I actually think that it's bad, like capital B bad to be so obsessed with like self-assertion and with this form of communication that really derives, I think, from a consumer mentality, right? Like I think there's – I don't think it's a stretch Mm -hmm. to try to argue that there are historical and structural and material reasons for all the people out there that are are playing Mark's bingo on our podcast. Um, But there are reasons (laughs) for it that kind of explain to us why there is this – overinflated tendency in our culture now. And I think it's a real, real problem. And I don't know what to do because I'm just like clamoring for maturity. And I think we're just not raised to like know how to grow. Like we're not like, that's part of the problem with adolescence. It's like, you're just a child and then you're in this weird no man's land and oh, now you're an adult. And we don't have a lot of the resources that usher us anyway through steps of maturity. And then now as like heading towards 40 quickly, I'm like, what are the resources for a dude in his late thirties that isn't just like, you got to hold on to your youth and self-assert as much as possible. And to be fair, Michael Bay is a dude in what, his 60s, who is clearly clinging on to his youth. Like, look at the people that he hangs out with, <laughs> the women that he dates. Like, he's clearly that kind of guy. So it makes sense to me that he doesn't have the kind of cognitive and emotional maturity in his dialogue, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'd actually like to hear from Michael Bay. So if you're listening, Michael, feel free to come on the podcast. Yeah, and, and Michael, yourself. if you want to hire me for a film, <laughs> I'll still be in any of your films. You know, just to... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I'd be curious, uh, listeners out there, we can, we can like transition now into running time. Um, if, if you all have seen a similar phenomenon in some of the more recent popular films and TV shows that you've seen. And again, this is not at all the same thing as saying like there's vapidity in media, in like reality TV or whatever. This is a totally different phenomenon than that. And I think definitely worse. Like I think you can, I think you can imbibe and consume tr- like trashy reality TV in a totally innocuous way, right? Uh, and still keep like you can still have like an ironic gaze at it that that, that contains a level of of maturity to it. But there's something about these kinds of movies that I feel like a little bit like it's deadening me. Like the the the, the lack of intelligibility of what's happening between the characters and the way they're communicating, it feels a bit like it's seeping into my soul and making me feel crazy. Mm. It's a little bit like being gaslit by a movie. Mm. <laughs> like to me, nothing is actually happening when these characters are, are producing sounds from their mouths, but yet it's portraying it as if there is something happening there. Yeah. And so I feel gaslit by this movie. It makes you feel a little bit crazy and it's kind of harmful. Yeah. I, yeah, that's a very frustrating thing. I think, I think <laughs> I've felt something similar and, um, I've actually kind of like been off of social media, not entirely, but I'd say like, I'm, I'm not really that active anyway compared to a lot of people but i've even reduced it even further especially over the last month or so and um yeah and then when i go back on i'm like super sensitive to like the type of communication that i'm talking about and and i see it now and i'm just like oh my god it's fucking everywhere it's everywhere and i feel like i feel like okay so am i just destined to be the old man yelling at clouds like uh, or do I just play the game and take part or am I, am I actually like missing something? Is the rest of society communicating in a way that I need to understand that it's good? I don't think that's the case, but I do. I have had this phenomenon recently as well. And for me, it's, it's, I've seen it in TV and film. And I think that's part of the reason I've just been so bored also with most of the stuff that's come out. Like I've just, doesn't really get me, you know, like it's, it's very hard for me to give a shit. Um, whereas then you get a film like Nope that comes out that totally, totally does something different and fresh and, um, can deal with human trauma related to like genre stuff like sci-fi and stuff like that. So like, it's not impossible to do it nowadays. It's just that it's becoming more and more rare because I don't think it's celebrated and appreciated as much as these other tendencies. Mm -hmm. Oh, we should definitely talk about Nope sometime. Have you seen it yet? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you're a big Park Chan-wook fan, right? Yeah, I had heard that he had a new movie in the works, but I didn't know it was already premiering somewhere. Well, at the festival, it was at a film festival, so it hasn't, like, actually premiered yet, but it was just, um, it was screening at the Melbourne International Film Festival, so straight from Cannes, you know, kind of, they do that here in Australia because their film festivals, both Sydney and and MIFF, are um, after Cannes, so they do, like, straight from Cannes, um, either it's going to do like, uh, the Australian premiere at Sydney film festival or Melbourne international film festival. And I was just, I just happened to be in Melbourne when, um, uh, when decision to leave was playing one night. So I was like, fuck yeah, going. And it's called decision to leave. Yeah. Oh, sweet. I'm excited. Oh, I'm looking at the trailer popping up on IMDb right now. It looks beautiful. It's, I it's, love Chenwick park, man. He's fucking amazing. Amazing. 
I know. It's fantastic. Uh, philosophy degree, I believe he has, right? He has a BA in philosophy somewhere in South Korea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is right. Yeah. And I think you can, you really do get like a depth and a richness and not just themes and concepts. Like there's some really lovely themes and concepts that he, you know, iterates in his films that I think is always something you can latch onto. But he just has kind of like a really interesting aperture that he opens up on the human experience that totally circumvents this tendency that we're talking about, you know, where it's, it's just characters emoting at each other or, or like in conflict with each other or angry at each other for what reason? Just because like he really gets down into like the depth of of human struggle and people trying to relate or to connect in the midst of oftentimes very weird stories, you know, but, um, I think, I think he's fantastic. So definitely if you are a fan of cinema, keep this film on your radar for when it comes out. Yeah, definitely. will. all right, should we talk about, uh, winning time? Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Um, I mean, you're the master, all right, man. you're the master here. So how about I let you lead and I'll follow. I mean, I think we kind of already had our, what I wanted to have as our lead in by just mentioning that, um, I watched this a few months ago. I watched it when it was airing. Cause like, obviously I had to, yeah. um, and so it's been, a, it's been a little bit, um, you've watched it. It's more fresh for you. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so there was a lot of talk about, um, at least some, you know, I'm, I follow like NBA Twitter and stuff like that and the NBA podcast. So everybody was talking about it when it was on and the Lakers suck right now. So obviously if you're interested in the Lakers, this is much more fun to talk about than the actual Lakers. Um, <laughs> and so there's a bunch of points of sort of, uh, uniqueness about the series and some interesting dramatic choices and narrative choices that they made that I wanted to run by you and see what you thought. But okay. I guess, you know, my my basic take that I want um, to set up and to have you respond to is that I, I loved it. I thought it was really well done. It hit every um, every pleasure center in my brain, even though there are, there are parts of it where I was uh, a little bit less enthused than others. But, I, but overall, I, I really enjoyed it and loved it and thought it was really good. But I also know that I, I cannot think about this objectively. Like I can't take a fully <laughs> objective eye on it. I yeah. think I would have known if it was bad. Right. Yeah. But I, I can't really tell <laughs> if it was just merely good or if it was actually great. Yeah. Usually I feel like I can tell the difference between those two things, but I can't in this case. So I need you to help me figure out if it's just good or if it's great. Uh, I, I, I mean, I thought it was good. I, I didn't think it was great. Um, but it's fun. It's enjoyable. Some of the characters are really engaging. I like I like kind of like living in different time periods because I feel like it's a like it, it just it's um it's almost like anthropology, right? Like you're looking at an artifact and you get to like go into it. So when they're done well and they can really capture a time, even though even though every memory is a misremembering, right? It, there's something about like mm-hmm. a, a nostalgic look backwards at a time that had some kind of import for a city or for a sport or for an organization or for a country in whatever ways. Right. And so like, I Mm. always enjoy that kind of, that kind of activity. So for me, that was the most fun. I liked living in, you know, like late seventies, I guess is when it starts, right. Does it start in like 79? Um, 79. Yeah. Yeah. Into, into like the, the first couple years of the eighties or the first year of the eighties, which I enjoy that because I think that time period is also really fascinating for me because it's just it's a time just before I was born but I felt like it was the immediate time that I was like living in the shadow of 
If does that make sense? Like, so I felt really close to it, even though even when I was growing up, it was still like I only knew about it through nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the immediate history that you didn't yourself experience. Yeah, yeah. So I've always felt like it was a part of me in a weird way, even though I didn't live in it, you know. And then when I was born, obviously, I was just a little child when when the Lakers were in their heyday. And so I don't have like I have very simple sense impressions of remembering Magic Johnson. And it's usually surrounding my dad watching games and watching games with my dad as like, you know, from a four to eight, nine, 10 year old. And I, and I, and I, and then at about like nine, 10, 11 is when I start remembering. But what I remember is Jordan more than magic, you know? Um, and so my personal memories are more Jordan, but like my memories with my, uh, about magic and the Lakers are with my dad when I was maybe like under 10, um, which makes sense. Cause then I w- that would have been like 93. Right. So, um, like from like 83 to 93, we'll, we'll say like 88 to 93 or whatever. Like my, my memories of this time are kind of like related to my dad who was a huge basketball fan, played and played and stuff like that. And so, yeah, yeah, that's kind of how it personally relates to me. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a couple of years younger than you, so I even have less actual experiential memory of some of the stuff in the late eighties. The first season of the winning time only takes place in 79, 80. So obviously neither of us were alive during that period. But for me, yeah, I, I came of age in the Jordan era. And so my first experiential memories are of Jordan. Um, although I, I feel like I remember the 91 finals, which was magic versus Jordan. And I definitely remember exactly where I was um, and how I felt when magic in 92 announced that he had HIV and was retiring. Yeah, I remember that. So yeah. Yeah, I have experiential memory of that. Um, but the the memory of the 80s Lakers for me comes from all the tapes my dad had. Mm. He had a bunch of VHS tapes of, um, of finals games against the Celtics and of these various like, you know, championship retrospective VHS tapes that the <laughs> NBA would produce and like dramatic music and highlights of the whole season and the narrative arc of when they were struggling and when someone got injured oh. and they came back and then they... And I would I would play those things on repeat. I know them like the back of my hand, right? And so I already view these championship seasons as narrative dramatic arcs, <laughs> right? Because this this is how I experienced it through these VHS tapes yeah. that my dad had that I would come home from school and just watch over and over again, um, and then go out in the in the front yard and start to emulate the passes that Magic would make and stuff like that. So. That for me, it is the kind of nostalgia, right? Because I'm not experiencing it in the chaos of actual experience. It's in the sort of neat and tidy narrative form that it comes in once it's already over, right? So yeah, this stuff is candy for me because that's already the way in which I remember it. Yeah, because I've been like a big fan of saying that, you know, films or, or retrospectives or any sort of media package... It isn't just the story that we tell ourselves. It's the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, right? And like this <laughs> is the way that we myth make. And I love – so NFL Films does this for seasons, of, you know, like you want to see the 
the unpredictable championship run of whatever team from, you know, 95 or whatever it is, right? NFL films will have, will have some cool with dramatic music and this uh, dude with an amazing voice doing voiceover, right? And you just mm-hmm. – you feel the drama and the tension and it feels important. And there's something about like the crafting of the narrative in that way that I am very partial to. So that's I, – I love – I know exactly what you're talking about. Those like – and then remember remember when we were kids, after a team would win, they'd be like like – There'd be like a commercial that would be like, buy the Lakers 2000, whatever (laughs) NBA championship package. Now you'll get a hat, a shirt and a VHS and a DVD and a DVD (laughs) covering the whole season. And it's like, you know, 2995 or whatever the fuck it was. Like they would sell them like almost Uh, immediately. (laughs) Yeah. They would sell them like immediately. And those were great, man. They were great. And, um, God, I, I do miss that. Like, there's something about the crafting of a story from a perspective that that takes us on a ride and that that if you are able to submit yourself to it you can really kind of enjoy the journey that the storyteller is taking you on right but we don't have that so much nowadays because there's in one sense, it's good, the kind of like democratization of media commentary, which is good in a lot of ways because there's so many different vantages that you can look at things on. The problem is, is that like it's not always the best of the best, right? you got to get really good at curating which voices and which vantages you are exposed to. And the problem is, is the majority of it is not good. It's just people who they just want clicks and so they just like lead into sensationalism Mm -hmm. or they just want um you know to monetize and so they just say stuff that they know is like the hot the hot thing like you and i were talking off air like i don't give a shit about the daily up to dates on kevin durant's situation with the nets i really don't yeah i don't give (laughs) a fuck about a tweet that he sent out about like the haters that are like, I don't care, but I want to know about what's going on in trades. And I do want to know what's going on in like, what are the moves? What teams are going to be positioned? Well, like I do care about that stuff a little bit, but it's so hard because for every fucking drama story I'm fed, um, there's like, no, no, the other way for every like good take that like gives me an overview of the season. There's like a dozen drama stories, you know, and I think you get that with content creators as well. For every decent channel that like for every every frame of painting, there's a thousand just kind of like shitty people like talking about how much they love the new Marvel film because it reminds them of their childhood or whatever. Sorry, I'm being a total hater right now. But, you know, that and and it just I, I don't know. So that said, the reason that winning time is interesting is because it's a singular vision. And that that to me is cool. It's a singular vision by a creative team, you know, helmed by Adam McKay, who are taking us down like a really nicely packed narrative. That doesn't mean it's true. That doesn't mean it's the real story. But if you are watching a fucking narrative TV show for the real story, you're looking in the wrong place, my friends. So... It's it's about embracing like the heightened emotion and the dramas and the narrative from the angle and the the like the the nostalgia. It's about kind of embracing all of those things. And I and from that perspective, I really enjoyed winning time.
Okay, this is a good segue because I think you're absolutely right about this point about like narratology, right? Where there's even a really interesting kind of philosophical debate about how necessary narrative is to having a self. Um, mm. Actually, it'd be kind of fun once sometime. There's a, there's a paper that I have my students read when I teach 101 um, by Galen Strawson called Against Narrativity. And in the paper, he argues that it's actually bad that we try to, um, that we have this tendency to institute a narrative form onto experience and that some people don't inherently have that. And it's a kind of violence on them, like oppression on them when we try Uh to make them experience the world in a way they don't actually experience from a first person point of view. Um, and I always get really interesting discussion from students about it. I'd be curious what you think about it. We should read that sometime. It's a really fun paper. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm on the side of like, uh, I kind of think you have to have things in a narrative form. Um, and you know, there, there's a certainly a place for like a Ken Burns style documentary, which is trying to get at the quote unquote, like objective truth or whatever, or trying to be like a, you know, have, have this historian's point of view at the very least, whether or not that's getting at an objective point of view. It's, it's at least like trying to be as detailed and as like um, sensitive to factual events as possible. And obviously winning time is not trying to do that. It's not, <laughs> not at all. pretending at all to do that. It's very much Hey, you know what? We're we're having a fun ass time here, right? And we have some fidelity to the to the people. Like there are important things that happen here. Um, especially, I'm curious what you think about how Kareem was portrayed in the show because I thought it was really interestingly portrayed in that vein. Um, but Jerry West's character is the one that got the most pushback mm. as far as whether or not there was, you know, over dramatization and exaggeration that was not didn't have enough fidelity to real history um, in a way that was. For some people, it was and for Jerry West himself, even who threatened to go to the Supreme Court with, with the lawsuit about this, um, seemed like that hit a nerve and seemed like the, there was a bit of a, a violation of you know reality or like real history or something that was happening there. So what did you think about the way that Jerry West was portrayed? You got to have a villain, you know? You gotta have. Is he a villain though? I mean, he's like he. Pro- but our back is the villain. Well, you gotta have like a, a counterpoint that's gonna produce tension, right? And the fact that he's constantly yeah. like, like we're not gonna draft this kid, and you know the other guys starting, and you gotta have, you gotta have the the hero, which is Jerry Buss, right? Like he's he's like the primary protagonist. He's the storyteller. He's literally the narrator at times. And we start with him. And yes, Magic is a central figure. Kareem is central. But I feel like it's really Jerry Buss's story that's being told, right? Which is fine. Or at least Jerry Buss and Magic, yeah. Yeah, well, because the thing that's interesting is I feel like what this series does is it personifies the organization and a time period. And it personifies them through, like, characters, and so the character of Jerry Buss is personified as representing like I'm going to turn this organization into an expression of my fast playboy mansion life, right? So you've got the club um in what was the club called in in the forum? Oh shit. What is the club called? Oh, the Forum Club. Yeah. The Forum Club. Okay, yeah. He's like, I'm gonna fucking I'm gonna I'm gonna do these things, right? So it's almost like he's like the personification of that time. And then magic is the personification of like the shift in basketball. Like 
He's the flash. He's he's the new school, right? Against like Larry, who's his foil, is like the old school. I just work hard and I do the fundamentals kind of like. And then, of course, there's the race relations that are tied into that, you know. And so I feel like each of them are kind of not caricatures, but they're like archetypes almost that are personifications of the organization. And in that sense, Jerry West is kind of like, he is the foil for Jerry Buss, right? Like, and and I actually think it's okay that he's like, he's the point of tension that really gets the ball moving in the series because he doesn't want magic. And by not wanting magic, not only is he against magic, and he's also against the new school. He's also against the flash. He's also against the organizational shift. And then he's also personally against Jerry Buss. So I think it's kind of like it was like, it was like a, a, a necessary ramping up in order to kind of heighten the tension. And I'm okay with it. That said, if somebody did that about me, I'd be like, oh, shit, are they impugning my character and making me look bad? And is that libel? You know, so it's kind of like in that sense, I kind of get why yeah. someone would get upset. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think if, you know, basically everybody was upset the way they were portrayed to some degree, but Jerry West was just the most vocal about it. Um, and, you know, his character is played for laughs in the first half of the first, of the season. So it kind of makes sense that, you know, the guy who's nicknamed the logo because the NBA logo is him and who's who's held up as, other than Bill Russell, may he rest in peace, Bill Russell just died this week. Um, other than Bill Russell, Jerry West is the statesman of of the league like the elder statesman he yeah. represents the pre-1980 first half of the league's existence he, he and bill russell are those are the two guys um so and he's obviously one of the greatest uh general managers and um like you know team organizers in the league's history so he's held up as basically a, a, a paragon who can do no wrong so seeing him be kind of made fun of is difficult i can imagine i cringed a few times um at the way that was done at the same time i kind of thought the way they did it in the end was brilliant because it wasn't really making fun of him i thought they had a lot of care about his character jerry west even in like his 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 memoir um i haven't read it but i've 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 heard some of it and he dealt with depression um suicidal ideation uh like not coming out of his house for days at a time. Mm. You know, he was notorious for being the hardest worker who would do anything to win. And he lost a lot more than he won. Mm. Um, lost like five, six, seven times to the Celtics before he finally got a championship in 72 uh, when he was on his last legs. And so notoriously won the first finals MVP despite losing <laughs> to mm. the Celtics. Um, and, uh, that all kind of comes out in the series as him feeling like he's sort of an addict for competition and for winning and he can never actually score. So he's constantly at this like level of eternal frustration, right? And he has to eventually come to terms with the fact that he can't play anymore and he has to sort of sit back and try to build a team and see if he can contribute towards his competitive drive that way. Mm. And he comes to a sort of realization about it that he can actually find some meaning in being part of this thing larger than himself. And that it's not all about putting everything on your own shoulders and winning in spite of everybody else around you. It's kind of trite when you put it that way, but 
I thought Jason Clark did a really great job with the role, especially in the last couple of episodes. And the the sit down that he has with Magic, and like I think it's the penultimate episode, where he talks about whether or not you have it. Like, do you have that insatiable desire to win, or are you all flash? Right. And he kind of gives him his pep talk, which I thought was pretty great. It was, I think, my favorite, like my favorite sort of basketball-y moment um, of the series was that pe- that pep talk that he had with Magic. Mm. Yeah, and it creates a really nice arc too because if he starts off – and that's the other thing they probably had to do is they had to kind of like heighten his starting point as being extremely oppositional to the whole organizational shift so that he could land – stick the landing at the end, right? Otherwise, you just don't really get a very interesting arc that people can um, latch onto. So I think from like from like a, a story craft perspective, it makes a lot of sense that they would do that. So and it is it and it works well and it it is great because it does kind of elicit an audience empathy and you root for him and and you do wonder I think it's hard though because we know Grandpa Jerry West as being like the elder statesman who um, is like executive of the year you know many, multiple times it's hard for us to see him like treated as like a shithead and we're like oh my god was he really this much of an asshole (laughs) yeah you know and it's hard for us to believe right it's like it's like like i'm going through on cinemathology i'm we're going through martin scorsese's filmography the the scorsese that i am introduced to as a human is the 90s scorsese who's like at that point he's like the elder statesman of cinema you know he's like um, he's already done Goodfellas because I didn't – obviously I didn't see Goodfellas in 91 when I was eight years old, you know. So um, it was uh, it was like I found out about him probably in like the late 90s when I started paying attention to cinema. And even then I didn't really know that he mattered. But he was just like this old guy that knew a lot about films. And then it's really the 2000s when you start are like, oh, cool. So this is when he starts to get mainstream success now. Like – but he's already been making films since the late 60s, you know. And and he was a cocaine <laughs> addict and he was a bit of an, a problem with some of the some of the the, um, the studios and the productions at times, you know, and he got kicked off of a couple and, you know, like he had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. And but it's hard to see these people in that light when you're just so used to them as being like, oh, that's the nice guy who's obsessed with film and who has this encyclopedic knowledge and who is like uh, mentoring young students and who just talks really fast about cinema or like with Jerry West. It's like, oh, that's the guy that they interview after he's won his eighth championship as a fucking executive and um, who's like giving this like really uh, eloquent and like nice interview about the offseason decisions or whatever, you know, like you don't see those other layers. And so maybe that's why the shock was kind of even greater is because we just we're not familiar with that story. And maybe it was heightened a little bit, you know, of course it is. Nobody wants their like warts to be shown on screen, especially if they are intensified. But there's also a sense in which, you know, it's okay to to document that aspect for the purpose of narrative in the service of the story that you're trying to tell. Yeah, I think that they the if you if you watch through the whole thing, I think it's pretty clear that the the story itself and the writers clearly have an immense amount of respect for Jerry West. And that's consistent with showing sweaty 50-year-old sex, whatever yeah. that horrible scene was in the <laughs> early episodes. <laughs> um, well, everybody, though, in the show has respect for Jerry West. Nobody is disrespectful to him. It's just he is 
he is self-destructive and his self-destruction bleeds into the workforce. And, and because he's so obsessed with winning his way, that's where the tension comes. But nobody is ever disrespectful to him. Nobody is like, yeah, this guy sucks. So even even the people who are opponents of him, even Jerry Buss, for example, right? Even his character is still like, dude, I want you to get on board. You know, like we care about you. You're amazing. You're fucking Jerry West. But he's self-destructive, so he does it to himself. Yeah, and you know what? Every character, honestly, is... I think viewed this way. Like Jerry Buss is clearly a groomer <laughs> yeah. in this series and they don't make bones about it. They're not even papering over it. Like it's, it, they're showing Jeannie Buss as being heavily negatively affected by the fact that her father is grooming people her own age. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they don't have that fact. And Kareem is a complete asshole to kids in a way that's been documented and is shown pretty explicitly in the series. Magic has all his issues with women Um, so none of them are, and they're not skated over as like, oh, look, there's, everybody has these flaws. Like they're pretty stark and they make you feel not good watching them. Yeah. 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 I did wonder like, like if magic and cookie are watching this, are they like, like a little cringy, like, oh shit, (laughs) like we don't need that shit thrown in our face right now. We don't need to relive those times, you know? No, I mean, the, the Lakers almost immediately when this was announced, um, put together this Hulu documentary series that just started airing this week, um, called legacy, which is their, their version basically of Mm. the story. So they, they, I don't think anybody in the Lakers organization liked the way that they were portrayed ultimately, which I think is part of what shows you that the series is good because it's not trying to be hagiography, which is what I feared it would be. Yeah. So like talking about those NBA retrospect or the NBA championship retrospectives, like they don't get into any of this stuff. The the most tension they would give right. you is like, <laughs> like, uh, and on the night of the night of game six, Dennis Rodman was two hours late for practice. And so you're like, that would be like the most, <laughs> that'd be the most, but they wouldn't go into the details of it, the depth of it, the real tensions, the anger, they would just create little drama in like um, like a Disney sense, right? That's like people overcoming mm-hmm. the odds to achieve the the, the top of the mountain, right? Whereas, Hurdles to, to be easily overcome. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Which is which is a very sort of like aspirational thing, which makes a lot of sense that, especially in a country like the United States, where we are so aspirational and the little guy can climb any summit, you know, like that sort of that sort of narrative is mm-hmm. just so ingrained, like. I, I, that, that like, even like, as I've lived now in, you know, multiple different countries, I sometimes feel like an alien walking around because I just look at like a, a quote obstacle. I'm like, that's just a puzzle to be solved. Like, come on, let's just figure it out. Like there's an answer. Every fucking problem has an answer. Let's just figure it out. Like we can do it. You know, like you never, you're, you're never a victim. You're never passive. You can always do it. And it's these fucking stories that were just fed to us as kids that feed into that. Right. And they were like overly simple, but there was like a real force and a power to them. Right. Whereas like that's mm-hmm. probably what legacy, the the Laker docker, that's probably what it's going to be. 
Right. It's going to be like, oh, yeah, for sure. The sterilized, disnified version of how it is they overcame some small quibblings and interpersonal tensions and personal character flaws. But for the most part, you know, they came together as a team and as an organization and they climbed the summit together. Whereas winning time it's the is the brand like, management. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And the goal of that is brand protection. Right. Like. That's where you can get a little cynical and you can even look at it as being actually quite cynical is that it's just about protecting their brand. Whereas Winning Time, and I don't know because I haven't read the book, but I would imagine that the book by Perlman, what they're allowed to do, what they're afforded with their storytelling license is that they don't have to serve the furtherance of the brand so they can tell those messy stories. Yeah, it's messy stories that really – are animated by a love for basketball and basketball-related culture, right? Um, and for human beings. And all the beings. ways that it influenced politics. And, yeah, and for genuine, well-rounded, yeah. extremely flawed um, human beings exactly. in that culture. Exactly. Which is everything that I love about that stuff, which is why I love the series so much, because that's what animates me. Is I love basketball, I love basketball culture, I love all the stuff surrounding it. Um, I love how it enables people to show all their warts in this unique, um, way. Yeah. I love all that stuff. And that's what, and you could tell that the creators, that's what animates them. That's what they love about this stuff too. I didn't know that Kareem was such a dick, by the way. Like I are not. Oh yeah. He was notoriously a dick. Yeah. I didn't know that he had that tension with magic because again, I was, I was way too young to pay attention and we didn't have the same media coverage that we have now. Like. If if this story had the same level of like social media transparency and media scrutiny that the athletes have nowadays, like there's no way that team would have held together because it would have been blown up, right? And we would oh, have, yeah. this would have been the thing that Stephen A. Smith and fucking Max Kellerman and Bill Simmons or whoever else are like ranting and raving about what's going on. This would have been the story that would have dominated the fucking interwebs day after day after day after day. But – I didn't know about any of that shit. Like I only knew about what was on the court and the curated stuff that would maybe come out in interviews, but it was all very managed back then. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you both about Kareem and about the magic bird dynamic. Cause I have a, I have a take about how that's going to go that I'm really hoping is going to be the case, but let, let's start with the Kareem, the Kareem and the Spencer Haywood dynamic. Cause the, the Kareem and Spencer Haywood characters are the ones who um, sort of tangentially touch the political and racial, you know, like, you know, early Reagan era um, dynamics that were at play. And I thought actually they did a pretty good job of being able to comment on that stuff mm. and make it a central part of the plot of the series without being kind of tokenistic or like, hey, we're going to talk about racial dynamics here, like in a way that, you know, like a Disney film might have like a scene that's like, ooh, look, there's someone being racist. They're bad. And then moves on to the next thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like they 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 destroyed the locker room and they they wrote racial slurs or something like that. And then, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my favorite scene of the whole series is the penultimate episode, I believe it is, when Spencer Haywood is, I think it's when he's getting the news that he's not going to be on the playoff roster, on the finals roster. I can't remember mm -hmm. which. Because um, he's been he's been on drugs and he's been kind of out of whack and he's not able to really show up for the team. And 
he has this sit down with Kareem and Kareem's explaining, like giving him the news, right? Yeah. And Kareem tells him, this is going to happen. I'm part of it. Like, but I'm here as a man to tell you that this is the case. Mm. And Spencer Haywood tells this story about, I'm trying to remember the whole scene. It's been a couple months now. Um, uh, this is not obviously in the, the Spencer Haywood's background is in the book, but this scene is obviously fabricated, right? Um, about like his father growing up in Mississippi and like basically picking cotton and him being growing up in this like basically like almost 17th century lifestyle, right? Barely any different than like slavery. Mm. Um, and then being able to like, I, th- I'm, I believe if I remember correctly, Spencer Haywood b- back then, because uh, Spencer Haywood was, was a veteran at this point, in like the late 60s, early 70s, um, you had to go to four years of college to make it to the NBA. Um, and so that was a way of keeping the league pretty white mm. so that um, some black players couldn't, if they couldn't make it through college, they wouldn't be able to get to the NBA. And I think Spencer Haywood sued or something as like an antitrust thing to get that removed. Um, since it's a kind of like, what's the legal term for when a bunch of corporations collude to stop employees from being hired? Oh, I don't Is know. it just collusion? Yeah. I mean, collusion sounds about right. It, yeah, it might just be collusion. I thought there was a more technical term for it. Um, but anyways, you know, is. an anti-labor practice. Yeah. And so, it, and he got, like, he won that. And kind of Haywood was sort of heavily disliked by the owners for a long time for engaging in this. So he's a pretty important figure in the league's political history. And he comes from this incredibly poor rural black background um, that explains a lot of, you know, why he is the way he is. And he tells the story about his father to kind of give Kareem a look at his life. And I thought it was really beautifully done seeing the actor. I guess he's a famous actor, the guy who played Spencer Haywood. I, I can't remember what he's from. I didn't recognize him. But um, yeah, if, if you're interested at all, just like look up that scene on YouTube or, or wherever um, of Spencer Haywood talking to Kareem in the locker room about his family history because it's it's a really great scene. Yeah. Um, I think there were also kind of I got kind of hints of him saying, like, we're still slave slaves to these white owners. Like, am I am I misremembering that or what was that kind of hinted at at some point? Like. Like there's a sense in which I've grown out of this, but they're still the ones kind of pulling the strings like was that. Like a little I mean, I. I can't remember exactly. There, there's definitely a sense of like, um, look, Kareem, obviously you you deal with a lot of, you know, like racist backlash and stuff. And, and like Kareem was, was pretty famous for being dick to, dicks to a lot of fans and responding to like racial epithets and stuff with vitriol and not being the like quiet, passive black athlete that people would celebrate. But Spencer Haywood's the one who actually came up with the background that was the most sort of disenfranchised from any power. Right. Yeah. Um, and actually like fought politically to get it. And, um, and so there's a way, there's a way of saying like, you know, recognize me as, as being someone who's fought for these things that you intellectually fight for. And you're like, you know, Kareem's the intellectual Spencer Haywood's not, but he's the one like on the ground fighting. And this is, I think it's a strong sense of like, we don't fully have power over our own work and over how we're viewed. 
that's and I don't I'm not sure if it's like hey we're basically slaves to these white owners so much as like this is the league still uses us for its own yes. purposes yeah and yeah. is willing to throw us away when we don't serve those purposes we don't we're not really empowered and that and like that's what I've been fighting for in my career kind of like getting Kareem to sort of see the bigger picture mm. yeah yeah no he was that that was a very interesting storyline and since i wasn't as familiar with spencer haywood as a player and i didn't really know much about like the lawsuit and stuff like that that was actually really interesting for me to kind of hook into um not only the fact like you say that the performances were great but it does add a lot to the element because they set it up in the first episodes too where they're like um where they're you hear like the sports commentators talking about um, Larry Bird, or you hear him talking about magic, and then on the screen they're like code word for black, 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 or like white, 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 <laughs> right? And it's like the big fucking bold letters, and and it is. It's like you know he's a hard worker, and then the other one is flashy or whatever, whatever terms they were using, right? And so there's clearly yeah, fundamentals, like, yeah, yeah. So there's cl- they're clearly setting this up as well, and then when you take into account that so Reagan gets elected right at this time and this is a real shift in american like cultural history something does change quite significantly here um mm-hmm. yeah and it, it it makes me wonder like where it's going to go in the enfolding seasons you know because i mean they're gonna they're gonna do a bunch more seasons right yeah i mean they the options uh season two or whatever so they're gonna do more at, at least one uh, more. i'm curious how they're gonna do it yeah. Because, I mean, they could do five championships. They could do five seasons, one on each of the championships. That would be a way to do it. Yeah, um, but they got to give you the losses too, don't they? I mean, they'll probably do, like, they'll end each season with a championship. And so, like, they'll the losses will be part of the season. But I don't think they'll end a season with, like, a with a loss. I mean, that's just a way they could do it. Or they could skip some. I don't know. I know that they've started to cast um, James Worthy and Byron Scott. So oh. if they're going to do that, they're going to they're going to skip a few or at least incorporate several seasons into one. Mm. Yeah, but we'll see. There's there's a lot of stuff they can do. Um, but OK, about the, the Magic and Bird stuff, there was some some pushback online, I know, from the way that was portrayed, especially the way that like how hickified Bird yeah. and Bird's I did friends and family that. were like, portrayed. They, they kind of. They almost make Bird like an outward racist himself too, right? Like, like I did wonder that. Like, he doesn't say anything explicit that I remember, but he does kind of have like a like a my kind versus your kind type of attitude, and maybe even some of the things he says, you know. And it did make me wonder, mm-hmm. like, did he actually hate Magic this much at the beginning, or was it just like a rivalry because it was like they were drafted at the same time and it was a competitive rivalry? I didn't know if it was as personal as they made it, which kind of did make me wonder if they made him a little bit more of like um, more villainous than was. But again, you gotta you gotta have the foil, right? You gotta create the tension. But I, I was wondering, yeah. It, but it, it did lean a little bit caricaturey at times. I think it it totally did and then bird himself was kind of a character so it's not like uh, and i say this with utmost respect like so was magic um they're both kind of you know ridiculously kind of cartoonish figures at certain points which is probably was a big part of why they were you know saved the league because they were these extreme kind of characters in addition to being two of the greatest players ever um i do think they're setting this up to 
to have a certain redemption arc. Because there's there's a famous scene. Um, it's in the book by Perlman. It's in a bunch of other books too. It's a kind of infamous moment where Magic and Bird are both um, employed by, I think, Converse. And before they get signed up to Converse, obviously they have the battle in 79 or the NCAA championship where Magic wins and beats Indiana State when Indiana State was undefeated. And Bird is supposed to be the greatest player in college basketball history or whatever since Kareem. Um, and Magic beats him and then goes number one in the draft. And then Bird wins rookie of the year in 80. But Magic wins slide. championship. But then Magic, but Magic wins the championship and the finals MVP, yeah. right? Um, and so they go this back and forth, right? And they definitely don't like each other. And there's vitriol, right? And they're rivals and all that. And then when they get sent up to Converse a few years later, they have this commercial where Magic goes to Bird's farm in Indiana in French Lick. And Bird has a basketball court built in his, in his um, parents' farm's backyard, which is real. He really does have that. And he and Magic play one-on-one and become mm-hmm. friends. And that thing is, it actually happened. Like Magic and Bird both talk about this as being the first time they'd ever sat down and actually talked. Oh, wow. Like people. Wow. And Magic, um, like Bird's mom made food for them when they were filming the commercial, mm. like after it was over. And they just talked. And Bird learned that Magic was actually working class. Like his dad was a was like a garbage truck driver or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Magic grew up in, you know, um, urban Michigan, not rural Indiana, but he was working class. Mm-hmm. And so he was actually very similar in backgrounds to Bird in a lot of ways. And so a lot of the and Magic wasn't a, just a flashy, you know, um, showstopper with a lot of talent. He was had to hit a working class sort of work ethic. And that's why he got to where he was, because he worked so hard just like Bird was famous for doing, right? And Bird is notoriously a trash talker, like one of the great all-time trash talkers, yeah. which is like the kind of urban way of playing basketball. It's not the Hoosiers' way of playing basketball, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so they actually realized that the the kind of caricatures that the media had of them were very wrong. They're actually very similar mm. in a lot of ways. And they're driven by a lot of the same sort of principles. And so my guess is they're trying to set this up to, for them to be really oppositional, even kind of in a caricatured way um, with birds like super hick family members being racist against magic. Right. And he does tell them to shut up. Right. So he is kind of like yeah, yeah. showing his non-racist bona fides. Um, and I think they're going to have this scene of them filming the commercial and getting to know each other as a future pivotal moment in the series where they gain respect for one another and learn that they're actually very similar. Mm. What year was that? That's going to be my projection. Uh, when was that? Um, it's it's several years later. So who wins? Who wins? It's eighty six. Oh, so it's quite a few years then, where they're kind of at odds. It makes it so. Who do you know? Do you have the list? So like, uh, eighty Lakers win championship. Win the championship. Who wins in eighty one? The Celtics win in eighty one, and, and they beat. Um, they don't beat the don't Lakers. When's beat. the first time that the Lakers and no, Celtics? No. When when do they play? Eighty four. Okay. As when they they play and the Celtics win. Okay. Uh, Eighty five. Uh, they play and the Lakers win. Okay. Eighty six is when the Lakers don't make it. Um, the Rockets make it and the Celtics win. Okay. And that's the summer of Tragic Johnson when Magic 
really fucks up. And that's why they don't get it to the finals. And he gets called Tragic Johnson because he's moping around everywhere. What happens? Uh, Magic just fucks up real bad in the series against the Rockets in the Western Conference Finals. Oh. And he like, commits terrible turnovers and like, I think he gets like a, like a five second call like at the end of the game. Just real like un, unusual, unprecedented stuff oh. for, for Magic. Interesting. But I can't remember if the commercial had to have been after that, okay. I guess. They, they might not do it in order. They might have that earlier so that they can kind of yeah. salvage. They'll, I mean, they'll probably want to have a series in 84 when the Celtics beat the Lakers to like have Magic and Larry go one-on-one. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. In uh, in the plot, you know? Because like they're they're clearly having this like, yes, Magic, you won the championship. Yes, you won the finals MVP. Like you're amazing, right? You're a god. But you're still thinking about Larry. And he's in he's home in Indiana still thinking about you. Yeah. Right? So like there's unfinished business they're setting up there. Yeah, they could fast forward and they could just do like a, the rivalry continued and then it culminates in 84 kind of season. Yeah, they could do 84. They could do 84 um, with the Celtics winning. They could do 85 with the Lakers winning. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, here's the thing, like to, to kind of like wrap it up, like I think it's a good show. I don't think it's like a great show, but I think it's a really good show. And compared to most of the drivel that's out there, it's top tier. <laughs> you know, it's definitely top tier. <laughs> um, but no, it's it's good. It's good. It's just like I'm trying to think like it's also just kind of like light, easy watching as well, even though there's a lot of these like heavy themes that we've talked about as well. And so maybe I'm just kind of on that side where I'm romanticizing the drama, right? Well, my sticky leaves, I'm going to talk about a show that um, I just think is amazing. But um, – and it's drama, right? Although it is – it's got moments of levity in it as well. But um, – so maybe that's why I'm like I'm like downgrading it a little bit, you know, because it's just fun. Although I don't know because one of my favorite TV shows is Love Sick, which is that Netflix show that I just think is absolutely fun fan fucking tastic. It used to be called Scrotal Recall. It's, oh yeah. It's only like three episodes or three seasons, I mean. But um Lovesick, I think mm-hmm. it's I think it's I amazing. That. Did you watch it? Yeah, I watched that back in the day. I think it's amazing. And it's fun and it's a comedy. So and but it's got like some obviously like serious human drama stuff to it as well, but not like overwrought. It's just, you know, kind of Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know. Like I think it's good. I just don't know if I would say that it's great. Yeah, that's totally fine. Yeah. Uh again, I I don't think I can look at it objectively. I've Thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, couldn't believe it was as good as it was given. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that um, it's hard to make a good basketball movie. Very hard. There aren't very many of them. There are not very many of them. Although, did you see Hustle? With Adam Sandler? No. Is it good? Oh, dude, it's really good. Okay. I mean, it's not, it's not great. But given the, given the bar for basketball movies, it's so low. Right. There's like white men can't jump and he got a game, which he got a game is kind of overrated, but it's still one of the better basketball movies. Um, there's just not very many good ones. Hustle is really good. Um, so he got game. There's another one that I'm trying to remember that had Tupac in it. And then that guy that's the actor that like oh, uh, above the rim. No, above the above the rim. Isn't is that what it is above the rim? Yes, yeah, one of Tupac, isn't oh, it? Oh, okay. It's been forever since I saw that. Yeah, though. and then it's got that guy that he like. I think he played for the Knicks, or he was like, like almost played for the Knicks or whatever. I, I like that one. That one was good. 
who almost plays for the Knicks. Yeah, the actor. What is that? The actor that like was the lead in that that film. I don't know. What's his name? It's like, is it Dwayne? Oh God, let's see here. Above the rim. Let's oh, you're see. talking about? I thought you were talking about a different movie. No, no, yeah, yeah, Dwayne Martin. I thought that was what his name was. Yeah, Dwayne. He, he, like, think he, I think he played or tried to play or tried out for the Knicks, and like he was a really good ball player. And this is one of the problems: is most basketball movies they don't cast really good ball players, right? So, like, a basketball movie that I really mm-hmm. enjoyed when I was younger was Blue Chips, but that's because it's got like fucking Penny and Shaq. <laughs> You and know? Shaq. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. The, the basketball scenes are actually good, you know, um, but mm-hmm. that's what that's what's important. But the problem is, is most athletes aren't good actors and then most actors aren't really good athletes. So it's difficult to yeah. find that balance between the two, whereas Winning Time actually does a really good job at finding that balance. It does a good job. And you know, Norm Nixon's son plays Norm Nixon. Yeah. Right. Which is awesome. And the guy who played Kareem was a, was a D one college player. And this is his so first, they were able to, to yeah, find his first acting thing. Yeah, exactly. Now who's yeah. that? I'm the, like oh, for, go ahead. Oh, like for white man can't jump. Um, Woody Harrelson's really good at basketball. Yes. That's a big part of why he can have the swagger he has in the movie that makes it believable. It's cause he's actually good at basketball. Yeah, and that's key for these sports films. And you can tell when you're watching, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, fucking High School Musical and Zac Efron is not a basketball player. And you're just like, oh, dude. <laughs> like, come on, man. <laughs> like, you can tell, or even if it's not him, like, maybe he's all right at basketball. I can't remember. But, like, you can see that the other players, you're like, oh, my God, they dribble with their head down. Or when they go up to do a layup and their form is like it's coming down from their ankle, you know? And I'm like, oh, my God, it just looks so awkward and weird. And you can tell they're just – Yeah, nothing. they do – Yeah. They do the Carlton from Fresh Prince from the <laughs> from Three Point Line. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you're like, oh, gosh. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, anyway. Um, yeah, and then Hoosiers, of course, is the classic. So – yeah, I mean, Hoosiers is classic. It's not my favorite, but um, but it's definitely a good movie. But that said, that's, you know, that's not very many good basketball movies. So Hustle is really great. Um, part of that's because Adam Sandler is actually really good at basketball. He doesn't play very much basketball in the movie, but the two NBA players that got to play the leads, uh, Juancho Hernan Gomez and um, Anthony Edwards, are both really good, especially Edwards. Mm. He's going to be a star. Um, he's like a super fun personality. He's the, he was the number one pick by the Timberwolves a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and he plays the kind of antagonist in the, in the movie and he's really good. So they actually, lately they've been finding some, some basketball players who can act and some actors who can play ball. So maybe there's some hope for more and better basketball movies and series to come. I, I think part of the differences though, is the changing of the league has allowed for athletes to have personalities. Whereas before yeah. it was so manicured that they were, I think oftentimes maybe like repressed or maybe a little awkward, or they were kind of more machinic in their public personas. But now you have these kids that are growing up being creatives and being creators. And maybe this is the good part of being self-assertive, but that they were able to kind of like have a vehicle for expression. And so I think being able to to know how to access that is going to do you a lot of good if you're trying to do some sort of acting, even if it's just like light acting, right? I'm, I'm not saying that Anthony Edwards is ever going to do like a fucking Daniel Day-Lewis type of role or something like that, <laughs> but but you never know. I'd watch it. You never know. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> 
we had to go we had to go through Shaq's movies like Kazam to get to where we are now. <laughs> That's right. That is correct. <laughs> uh, or no, I mean Kareem walked so Shaq could stumble, so Anthony Edwards could fly. <laughs> yeah, dude. Enter the dragon, man. That's it, baby. <laughs> and then airplane. <laughs> Uh, yeah airplane's great that's right that's right you tailor your dad to drag bill walton up and down the court <laughs> hey you know who else was good uh and i don't know if we can call it a basketball movie but kevin garnett in uncut uncut gems oh yeah he's great in that he's right. so good but he's just a good actor you can just tell yeah like he <laughs> he's he's good like he's like if you didn't tell me that he was a professional athlete and you just watched it and you're like Man, that actor's that actor's solid like i don't think there's a moment where you blink and you have to go like oh yeah that's an athlete playing uh, or, or that's an athlete stepping into a role of being an actor like no it, he's just good yeah, I mean, he's he's always been that way. Anytime you see him on like an NBA show or doing um, a, like a talk show on NBA TV or whatever, he's just a storyteller, and he's so magnetic, mm. right? Um, it's no, no surprise at all to me that he would be a good actor. Yeah. I hope he does more because he's so good at it. Yeah. Did you see the new Space Jam? I did, of course. Unfortunately, how's LeBron? Oh, it was awful. It was so bad, dude. Oh, really? Um, bummer. <laughs> it's a bummer because LeBron actually can act in snippets. Like he was in that one comedy with Bill Hader. And Amy Schumer. Um, yeah. What was it called? Yeah. He was good. Oh, man. Yeah. He's, he, he was like the little, um, little like a uh, comic, comic relief. relief yeah. You know, but, side he was, character. but he was still good, right? Because isn't he like he's like obsessed with Bill Hader or something like that. Remember? And like it was actually funny. Cause he like kind of humbles himself and to see him kind of yeah. do that. Like you don't see a lot of like big, larger than life figures doing that. And so that actually takes, that's a skill and it was really well done. Yeah. I think in small snippets, LeBron can do pretty well, but taking on a lead that's poorly written and just mm. a bad movie, it, he was never going to do well in that uh. context. I mean, to be fair, there's only so much you can do with a poorly written script. So yeah, yeah. He, he was never going to be like the one who saves a poor script. So <laughs> Oh, well. Oh, well. Just, they, hey, it's actually a metaphor for how he does with the poor Lakers team. Well, we'll see. What if, what if they— as great, as great as he is, he can't save it. You never know, man. What happens if all of a sudden he goes back to like seven years ago LeBron status and, uh, you know, they get Kyrie over and he's whatever and he's committed now and, you know, like it could—something could happen. I mean, if they have a good team, sure. But if they don't, he was still one of the best players in the league last year and it didn't matter. Yeah, but he also was injured and, you know, there were some chemistry things. But this is, you know, year two of it. And to be fair, I'm just not sure the the Westbrook experiment works with, you know, so. No, it definitely doesn't. <laughs> no. Yeah, because those Cleveland Cavaliers. Let's not talk about Westbrook anymore. We're talking about the good times, right? <laughs> the 80s. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. Um, I can't wait till they get AC Green in there because I want to see what they do with him being like super evangelical Christian in the midst of all the craziness, by the way. Like, I hope they can. There'll be so them. many sex jokes. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to have like a bunch of naked women dancing around him when he's closing his eyes. Yeah. And shit. It's going to be hilarious. I hope they get to that. I really hope so. That's that's a story I'm looking forward <laughs> to. Uh, all right. Let's move on to the final segment. 
All right. So for those who don't know, the final segment is the sticky leaves segment. That's where one of us talks about whatever it is that's bringing us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So Austin, you said you were going to talk about a show that you've been watching. So what's that show? Well, I have so many things that I could talk about, right? That have been, I've, I've seen some like not good stuff, but that's also given me joy. And those are always fun sticky leaves, but I'm not going to do that right now. I'm going to talk about a show that I haven't finished yet. I'm sure a lot of people are out there watching. And so I might just be preaching to the crowd, to, to the crowd here preaching to the choir um i might just be preaching to the choir here but uh better call Saul. are you are you oh god are you are you done i I finished it last night i finished it last night okay like i am two-thirds of the way through season six so i realized oh god i know i realized halfway through releasing no the actually i realized like as they were releasing the final season that i was like three seasons behind. So I had to go through and watch seasons. No, no, I was two seasons behind. I had to watch seasons four and five before I could get to six. And so I'm caught up. Yeah, I'm caught up, mostly caught up. I'm obviously just a few weeks behind here. But my partner and I, we finished episode eight last night of season six. And I think there's 13. So which um, which one is eight? Well, like, Spoiler alert for people who don't know. I'm just going to let you know. Like if you haven't caught up, spoiler, spoiler, turn it off now. My sticky leaves is just to watch it. It'll be great. We love you. Uh, <laughs> listen to us later. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Okay. Um, so it's the episode where Howard gets taken out. Oh, God. It's it's the one. after That was a crazy one. Man. Yeah, it's the one. It's fucking Lalo, dude. Yeah, <laughs> it's the episode after that, actually. That's episode eight, because my partner and I, it was a little late and we were like, but we can't we can't go to sleep on that. <laughs> <laughs> like like we were both literally we were like, we can't go to sleep now on that. We got to fucking we got to watch one more. Right. So we watched one more. Um, but yeah, it's it's around it's that time period. So Howard has been taken out. Um now Lalo is dead in the next episode. Um, mm-hmm. And they get buried. So you watch the Gus, the Gus Lalo showdown. Yeah. And now they get buried in the grave underneath the meth lab. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's where we are now, which is really interesting because Lalo's arc was carried over from the previous season you know, Nacho gets taken out. Then, um, then Jimmy and Kim, their like plan seems to go well. So they're like on top of the world. Then Lalo comes, but then Lalo's taken out. So it's like now it's almost like they're going to have to shift at this point of the season and connect it more now towards Jimmy's practices, maybe starting to get followed by uh, the FBI or something like that. And then how that connects with the Breaking Bad arc. They're going to have to start connecting. So it's almost like – I almost feel like they did it like a part part one and part two, right? Like this feels like the end of part yeah. one of season six. And now it feels like the beginning of part two is going to start. Yeah, very much so. Okay. that's Because it feels like it has to because they just wrapped up – they wrapped up the story that they started previously. And now you're like, well, wait a second. So, so Fring is – clear i mean obviously now he's still going to have some sort of issues to deal with because um the salamancas are going to figure out what happened and there's going to be some sort of problem and um 
So you're like, okay, so there's a little bit of stuff there, but you're like, but now it's going to definitely be much more tying us into the Breaking Bad storyline, which means that they're going to have to kind of set up some new problems and some new tensions, which they've already started to do with Jimmy, like taking on a lot of work, being a a lawyer of the cartel and shit like that. So now you can kind of see where it might go, Mm -hmm. but like it definitely feels like a turning point of the season. So, but it's excellent. It's It's definitely a turning point. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I want to hear your reaction to what you think about the show um, so far. Um, But I do want to say we should probably also talk about this for the main segment next week when you finish it. (laughs) Okay. Because there's a lot to talk about in these last several episodes that I think is very worthy of us talking about. Um, And I'm, I'm very excited to talk about it with you. Okay. Because one worry you might have being where you're at right now is holy shit there's nothing left left at stake right we know gus survives to breaking bad we know mike survives into breaking bad and we know how they both die right right and we know how walter white goes and we know jesse survives and we don't know about um uh jimmy and kim right right right. so i guess that Everything hinges on like what happens to Kim, right? Right. Um, right, right. Since at least we, at least we know Jimmy survives until like Nebraska stuff happens, right? Um, so I guess that's at stake, right? But that's basically it. And so I think the way I won't say anything to spoil, obviously, um, for you, but I was curious about how they were going to deal with all that. Like, how can they really make a dramatic finale out of this? Since we know so much already, mm. right? And they made really interesting decisions about how to play these last like five or six episodes Mm. out that, I mean, I just watched the finale last night, so I'm still kind of dealing, like thinking about it and processing it. But I I think it's very much a panacea to a certain, a certain phenomenon in uh, prestige TV over the past 20 years that they were going to try to do. So I won't say any more than that because I don't want to give you any hints, but like 12, 16, whatever hours later after watching it, um, I'm really, I'm really excited about what they did. And I'm, I'm super curious to see what you're going to think. I will say this. I, I am, that is a little bit of my question. Like, but because I know that they're going to tie it into Breaking Bad, my question was, is, okay, how are they going to do that? And what's the story that we're going to be told or led along in conjunction with the story that we already know took place? Like there's going to be much more of a, a we're going to we're going to be seeing all kinds of different things going on. And what I wondered is, and don't say anything, but my hypothesis was something like, are they going to do something where it's like, what we witness isn't when Saul just meets the Breaking Bad people, but it's going to like go through that entire story arc, right? Like, or it's going to, it's going to be like an accelerated timeline. We're going to have like, um, that's what I was wondering. That was kind of what I was thinking. And you don't have to say anything, but that was kind of my hypothesis. I, was like, I, won't, I won't say anything. Yeah. Man. I was like, if they do that. That would be really interesting. Um, yeah, like all of a sudden now these episodes start moving maybe months, years ahead rather than days, weeks, you know, which is how it's been. That was kind of my 
you know, um, my assumption. And then I'm, I'm really curious too, like at what point in journeys, at what point in Jimmy's journey does he meet with, um, Walter and the crew, you know, like at what point, like, is it that quickly? Like from when he's like kind of like started up his business or is it months, years, whatever later? And we've gotten all of these like interesting hints too of like him breaking the wall to get cash, you know, in like season four or something like that. There are all these like flash forward things that we get where it's like clearly they're being raided and he's having to take cash and then giving it to his secretary so she can run out. And it's in an office that we haven't seen yet, you know, like the office structure. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen that office yet. And then of course, at the beginning of this season, there's like the raid on his house and you're like, Oh my God, this like gaudy fucking house where it's like, um, yeah, <laughs> you're like, you're like, so how does he get to that point financially and what's going on? So we know that that's coming. It's just seeing how all of these threads are going to come together. I'm, I'm very curious. Yeah. And there's not a lot of time. No, there's only, <laughs> there's only five episodes. Yeah. So I'm like, that's why I'm like, okay, there's like an accelerated time thing that they're doing here. So I'm, they, they're going to do something. So I'm curious. Yeah. I'm curious how it's all going to work. So. Yeah. They, they, they took a pretty unique approach to it. Okay. So, um, cool. Let's, let's tentatively plan. Do you think you'll, you'll finish it by next week? A thousand percent. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Sick. That's what we'll do then. Oh yeah, dude. It's yeah, and if it's so good. I loved I this is no go ahead. No, and I was gonna say if you're out there, make sure you catch up with us so you can join us. But yeah, go ahead. What this what? Yeah, I mean I just I I rave about Better Call Saul, dude. It is I mean, I, I feel like a lot of people talk about it, so it must be very popular, but also at the same time, it doesn't have the zeitgeist in the way that a show of this quality ought to, you know? So I, I'm glad I'm really glad to know that like it's also on your radar. I was like, oh my God, this is like a really important piece of like art that's been created here that has some important things to say that's worth talking about. So I'm glad we're going to do that. Cool. Cool, cool. Um, all right, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Thank you all for tuning in and checking us out. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, Austin, uh, Austin, uh, owls underscore at underscore Don. You can email us <laughs> owls at Don podcast at gmail.com. As Troy said, we've got a Patreon where you can go ahead and throw us some coin. Patreon.com slash owls at Don. We probably got to do a bonus episode. Um, uh, a patron chosen episode here a bonus episode my brain is just fucking everywhere a patron chosen episode here uh, <laughs> coming up soon maybe we should open up uh, maybe we should create a post for our patrons and open up um, some suggestions yeah yeah I'll do that okay cool so if you're a patron uh, look out for that if you're not a patron then head over to patreon.com slash at dawn and you can get access to how you can um, suggest topics for us to discuss uh, but as Troy said let's do some fucking better call Saul next week I'm so keen for that yeah, dude. That's going to be awesome. Sick. Well, uh, I mean, I think that's pretty much everything we got to say, unless there's anything else you want to say. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Vadani, Amerikanski. <laughs> <laughs>